of an angel. That's what I got, y'all. The voice of a damn angel. <laughs> Alright, welcome to the show. <clears throat> We're locked and loaded. We're ready to go. I got about 13 videos queued up, ready to fire over to. Um, uh, I'll go through a range of emotions today, but first and foremost is going to be anger. You're about to see the anger portion of the show coming right up. Um, so I got Bernie Sanders being treated just, I mean, it's on purpose. It's on purpose. You don't even need to take out your tinfoil hat for the next, um, conspiracy that I'm going to lay out for you because it's out, it's in plain sight. So get ready for that. Uh, you should be angry because I'm fuming. 
I have Bernie's uh, plan on money and politics. I got an update on Turkey and Syria and the Kurds. Um, I got. I, I will be doing a segment on the Ellen DeGeneres thing, even though Corn and I spoke about it on Kyle and Corin. Um, Donald Trump made a political ad attacking Joe Biden, and some networks are refusing to run it. Uh, we'll talk about that. Um, the state of income and wealth inequality in this country, uh, really next-level stuff. I have some new numbers that basically verify that we are a plutocracy. We are actually a plutocracy on paper. So that's fun. Um, and, of course, I thought we were gonna, everything was going to go smoothly, but naturally, second I start talking, we got the BB McBeepington on the laptop going on. And uh, I will fucking blow a gasket if that thing continues to make noise during the show. <clears throat> I'm in no mood to hear the beeping McBeepington in my face all day. None whatsoever. Okay, so, make sure I have all the toast crumbs removed from my face. There we go, more beeps. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Okay, now if this thing doesn't stay like this, I will be breaking stuff. <clears throat> it's definitely not going to stay like this. All right, here we go. So immediately after Bernie Sanders got out of the hospital and healed up, um, the media started going out of their way to smear him. Now, I understand if you're skeptical up front, you hear that claim and you think, come on, guys, you say it's a smear at everything. Um, I will prove it to you. Even if you're going into this segment and you're like, I don't know about all that, um, I will prove it to you. So... This is one of the first interviews he did. Uh, it's him and, and Jane are going for a walk. He's talking to CNN here. And listen to his commentary, and then I'll tell you how they spun it. Do you, do you expect when you do start to travel more that you'll be able to keep up the same type of robust? No, I, I don't know. I think not certainly immediately. Look, we were doing, you know, in some cases, five or six meetings a day, you know, three or four rallies and town meetings. I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, but I certainly intend to be uh, actively uh, campaigning. I think we're going to change the nature of the campaign a bit and make sure that I have the strength to do what I have to do. What do you mean by change the nature? Well, probably not doing four rallies a day. I'm not quite sure that I, I could be wrong in this, but I don't know if there's anybody who did more rallies than we have done all over the state. So we're going to you know, probably not do three or four rallies a day to do or do other events as well. Okay, so when you hear that commentary, what's your takeaway? My takeaway is Bernie Sanders was doing basically double as much as all the other candidates, and uh, now he's going to start campaigning like a normal human being. And now he's going to, instead of be trying to be Superman, he's going to work just as hard as everybody else, or maybe even outwork them, but still do that which is in the realm of human capability. That's my takeaway from that. You want to know why? Because that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. That's, that's his point. Now, CNN took the same thing you just saw right there, and they isolated two little parts of it, and they ran with it as if the argument Bernie was making was actually the opposite, as if the argument Bernie was making was like, I don't know, maybe we're going to start to wind down our campaign. So here are the parts of that that they um, ran in headlines and put on tweets. We're going to change the, quote, nature of our campaign. So what you just saw right there, they, they took 
Bernie Sanders says he's going to change the nature of his campaign. And the other one was, Bernie Sanders needs to make sure he has the, quote, strength to continue, because he said there, you know, I'm going to keep my strength moving forward. So they basically search for the little nuggets that they could take out of context to run headlines and run tweets saying, I don't know, is he ending his campaign? He says he needs to change the nature of his campaign to continue. He says he needs to make sure he has the strength to continue, which means he doesn't have it right now. I don't know, is he going to drop out? So that's what they were running with. Now, I am a little bit upset at Bernie as well because, honestly, you know, if I'm advising him, what I say to him up front is, no, what we are going to do is roll back your events because four rallies a day is insane, and we are going to make it more reasonable. However, you're not going to tell the media. You're not going to tell the media at all. You don't need to tell them anything. Just go and do your rallies and do your stuff, but there's no – you don't need to, oh, we're going to, you know – um, I need to make sure I have my strength. We're going to change the nature of our campaign. You don't have to say any of that. Just schedule your rallies. Do your rallies. You don't tell them that's what you're doing. You just do it. And then if anybody, you know, asks you a question about this episode, you say to them very simply, I just defeated a heart attack. Defeating Donald Trump is going to be the easiest thing in the world. So that's what you do. You don't give them anything that they can even potentially take out of context. Okay? But make no mistake about it. As much as I'm a little upset at Bernie here, I'm way more upset at the media. And guys, here's the point. Again, they're doing it on purpose. Everybody who watched that clip understood the underlying sentiment. The underlying sentiment was, oh, we're going to fight on, but we're just going to have a more normal schedule. But it was fun. It was fun as if, like, oh, is he going to drop out soon? Changing the nature of his campaign? What does that mean? So, now I would understand if you say to me, Kyle, I'm still not necessarily buying it. There was a little uh, twinge of that in Bernie Sanders' commentary. You didn't need the media to spin it. Well, I disagree on that point, but nonetheless, I digress because I'm going to prove it to you in a different way. So it was CNN who recorded this and then ran all the headlines and whatnot. You notice something different about that video that CNN put out? Something weird. Maybe you looked at Bernie's face and you thought, wow, I mean, he seems really red. Are we sure he's healthy? Why is he so red? Now, you know, it's subtle, but it's definitely there. So now let's take a minute and let me show you what the video looks like when they don't massively increase the saturation. You see that picture? One of those is with a normal lens. One of those is what happens when you make the saturation normal. The other one is what happens when you increase the saturation on purpose to make him look incredibly red. They did it on purpose. They did it on purpose. I happen to know a thing or two about editing. I happen to know a thing or two about videography. And there are other people as well that know it, and they were talking about it on Twitter. And bottom line is, this isn't a whoopsie. This isn't like, oh, it just so happens that the camera they pick, that's the lens naturally. No. It doesn't look like that unless you want it to look like that. So they massively increase the saturation to make him look red and unhealthy. In the same segment where they purposely take what he's saying out of context to make it seem like he's going to drop out and what's he doing, he doesn't have the strength, oh my God. They're purposely trying to make him seem weak and unable to continue. And in that same segment, oh, would you look at that? We just so happen to make him look massively red on purpose. 
By the way, other cameras that were around at the exact same time, like there was an Associated Press camera, Bernie looks totally normal. In fact, Bernie looks healthier now than he's looked arguably in the past three months. Every other camera in the area saw a healthy person and heard a healthy person say, oh, we're going to continue. We're just going to have a more normal schedule now. But CNN tried to make it look like he's not healthy. Maybe he won't continue. And oh, my God, look at how unhealthy he looks. He's so red. Now, again, even if after all that you say, Kyle, I still don't believe you, man. First of all, I mean, wow, if you don't believe it. I mean, it's clear as day right there what they're trying to do. They're doing these subtle little things to make him look more unhealthy, to act like, oh, maybe he's going to drop out. Plant that seed in people's mind that eh, he's not up to the job. The day after, CNN talking about Bernie Sanders, and look at this screenshot. This is on purpose. And what's so stunning is you had people in the field doing it, and you have people in the studio doing it. You have different people at CNN making an active decision. Let's do little things here and there to try to make him look more unhealthy. Bernie doesn't have that kind of spot on his forehead. Why on earth is there a picture, a graphic of Bernie Sanders up on CNN with discoloration on purpose, with a spot on his forehead that's not there? What's going on here? Guys, I'll tell you what's going on. They don't want him to win, and so they're trying everything they can to make sure that doesn't happen. And what they think at this point in time is, oh, well, he's clearly on the ropes because he needed surgery, he needed stents. So therefore, the American people are probably already thinking, I don't know if he's up to it, man. 78 had stents, not sure he can continue. So they say, let's kick a man while he's down. Let's smear him while he's down. And let's do these little subtle things to plant that seed in people's minds that even if they're still thinking, well, maybe he'll be all right. You know, Biden had a brain hemorrhage. Uh, Bill Clinton had stents. You know, this is a relatively common procedure. A million of these are done every single year. You have a lot of candidates with health issues. But, hey, he's healthier now than he's been in years. So, hey, maybe he's ready. No, they want to make sure to drill the idea home that, no, 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 I mean, come on, man. Come on, he's talking about the nature of his campaign. He's saying he needs to make sure he has a strength. Should this really be a thing? Should we have to worry about the strength of somebody who's going to become president? I don't know about all that, bro. I mean, did you see him in that video? He didn't look too good now, did he? I mean, look, he looked really red. I mean, this is what they're trying. Guys, it's on purpose. 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 There's no doubt about it that it's on purpose. How do you explain the messing with the graphics on two separate days by separate people who work at CNN? It seems like there was an order at the top. Like, oh, it's time to... Uh, stick the knife in and twist it. That's what we're going to do with Vernon. We got to fight harder now than ever. I'm sorry, but we do. We have to fight harder now than ever. Don't make me go through the list again, because I will go through the list again. There's not a question in this race, if you're a Democratic Socialist or a Social Democrat, or you just want to improve the lives of your friends and family and your family and your neighbors, He's the best by far. I'm sorry, he is. He just is. I don't care. Whatever other candidate you throw at us, I can point out a couple areas where it's like, mm, 
don't know about all that. With Bernie, it's just one thing after the other thing after the other thing after the other thing. Any criticisms I have of him are on the edges. I mean, overwhelmingly, he's just above, he's above and beyond everybody. We're talking about a guy here who, ready, on, on these two facts alone, that's it. Everyone else is strike one, you're out. Bernie Sanders wants to eliminate all student loan debt and all medical debt. That's it. It's over. <laughs> Nobody else wants to do that in the race. Nobody else wants to do that. So we're talking about a guy who will fundamentally fight to change the system from the top down to help regular people. And they don't like this guy because he's not friendly with the establishment. He's not doing weird stuff behind the scenes where he's courting them like Elizabeth Warren, where she's a perpetual fence sitter and has one foot in the progressive camp and one foot in the establishment camp. You don't have to worry about him. You don't have to question him. When it comes to strategy, he's above and beyond everybody. Because he made perfectly clear, if they don't vote for, for my agenda, which is the agenda of the American people, then I'm going to go fight against them and do rallies in their states. Joe Manchin, sorry, we're going to have some rallies in West Virginia against you. You want to know why? Because we care more about Medicare for All than we do about you know, making sure you're in the government. we got to fight harder now than ever. Because what they've done is they've taken this issue of his health, He's, he got the surgery. Again, he's healthier now than ever, healthier now than he's been in years. He's ready to continue. He's ready to fight on. They're taking things out of context on purpose, and they're changing his physical appearance on purpose to try to stick that knife in and twist it. If there were just ideological differences in mainstream media with Bernie Sanders, that's fine. We can have that conversation, we can have that debate, we can have that discussion. Now, we're going to win that discussion, but nonetheless, we can have it. And we can have, there can be respectful disagreements. Okay, sorry, I get it. You're a capitalist, you're more in the center, you think we only need minor changes in the system. I got it. This isn't that, man. They know that when it is a fair fight, they can't win. So that's why they have to resort to tactics like this taking him massively out of context on purpose, making it seem like he's too weak to continue, making it seem like he might drop out, and changing the way he looks to try to make him look worse, to try to drive home the idea. Well, if you were on the fence and you thought maybe he's not healthy enough, he's definitely not healthy enough. Look at him. Just look at him. And for Bernie and his team, it's time to take the gloves off, dude. I'm sorry, but listen... Donald Trump never shies away from a fight. Now, oftentimes, Trump is dead wrong when he goes after the media. But would he stop to, you know, let something like this fly by? Would he be like, yeah, this is fine. No. no, he'd be out there screaming fake news and busting him up and going on the offense. And that would rally his base to him and solidify his support even more. I get it. Bernie's a serious person. Trump is not. Bernie tries to take the high road because all he really cares about is policy. And Trump doesn't. I get all that stuff. But this is a dogfight, man. This is a dogfight. You can run the race that you want to run if the world was perfect and everybody was treating you fairly. Or you can run the race that's going to win. And the race that's going to win is we're not taking it anymore. The gloves are coming off. We'll go on the offense. I dare somebody to bring up my health. I would, I would, honestly, I would tweet that picture, the back-to-back the -back of, hey, here's how CNN portrayed me, here's what I actually look like. Weird. I would tweet that. I would tweet that because guess what? It's not even a conspiracy. Now, they'll call him a conspiracy theorist, and they'll write a thousand hit pieces on him. I don't care. 
Let them run the hit pieces on him, and then let him respond. See, this is the thing that people on the left need to understand, and this is what Republicans have understood for decades. It's not the end of the conversation when the media says something. That's not the end of the conversation. The conversation ends when you want it to end. So you can keep firing back, and the more you keep firing back, the more over the top you go, the more clear you are, the more headlines that they run about you, and the more people will see both sides of it. And they'll learn very quickly one side are just smear merchants and the other side is serious. So I've been calling on the left for a long time to not just take on the Republicans, not just take on the corporate Democrats, also take on the media because they don't agree with you and they don't like you and they're not lefties. They're, they have an establishment bias. So I'm sorry, I wouldn't take this lane down if I was Bernie and his team. I would go on the offense. My line again now would be, if I defeated a heart attack, defeating, uh, or defeating Donald Trump is going to be easy. You could even say it in terms of the Democratic primary. I defeated a heart attack. I can handle Joe Biden. Sometimes you got to puff your chest out, and sometimes you got to go, you know, over the top with it. And it's time to do that, especially because now the perception in the country is, well, I mean, okay, Bernie, but aren't there questions there about his health? That's the perception. So you need to aggressively push back against it and prove your case. You need to have a very vibrant debate performance coming up where you're aggressive and you're on message. Okay, but also I wouldn't shy away from fights with the media, especially when they're doing stuff like this where it's crystal clear that they're acting in a disgusting, underhanded way because they don't like Bernie Sanders. Okay, next. Bernie released a detailed anti-corruption plan, and I want to go through it with you. So here's some of the stuff that Sanders' plan would do. Ban all corporate donations for presidential inauguration events and cap all individual donations at $500. So right off the bat, that's something that nobody else is proposing. Um, all corporate donations from presidential inauguration events banned. That's next level stuff. Like Donald Trump was pretending he was anti-corporate in, uh, in his campaign when he ran in 2016 and when he won. But then immediately, when it was, you know, his inauguration, he start, they started taking massive amounts of corporate money. Um, at the convention, of course, they took massive amounts of corporate money. I mean, he was doing it for his campaign, too, but he's pretending he wasn't. He was, oh, I'm self-funding my campaign or something, whatever. But he's not. He wasn't doing it. So Bernie's not playing around. He's saying, no, 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 this doesn't just apply to me. This applies to the party. This applies to the inauguration. Let's continue. Ban corporate contributions to the Democratic Party convention and all related committees. See? Return to mandatory public funding for national party conventions by strengthening the Federal Election Campaign Act. Ban DNC donations from federal lobbyists and corporations and set up a lifetime lobbying ban for national party chairs and co-chairs. Lobbying ban, I love that one. Ban advertising during presidential primary debates. Okay, see that's again, brilliant. So he sees a lot of the, you know, the European models on this and he goes, oh, that makes a lot more sense. He would cut out the commercials from uh, presidential primary debates. And I think he also said on Joe Rogan's show he would change the format where it's a more serious format, where it's not just sound bites back and forth. Um, you know, you give 
uh, each the parties or the candidates their own 30 minutes or an hour, and they would walk through all of their uh, proposals, which, again, I think is a wonderful idea, and it's a way of treating this um, election or all elections as seriously as they should be treated. Uh, he would also – now, the next thing Bernie would do is he would replace the Federal Elections Commission with something called the Federal Elections Administration. And the reason for that is the Federal Elections Commission is deadlocked on purpose. And so they never get anything done, and they allow all types of corruption because it's you have equal number of Democrats and Republicans, and no matter what happens for both sides, they go, well, nothing to see here. I don't see anything wrong with the way that this person's raising money, even if it's brazenly corrupt. So he says, get rid of the Federal Elections Commission, bring, make the Federal Elections Administration, and have them actually do their job and not be partisan deadlocked and have experts who know campaign finance law and actually enforces it. They say that FEA, by the way, all this is uh, listed in Vox here, the FEA would have three members, a chair and two administrators. All members would be required to have a background in some form of law or ethics enforcement. Hearing for violations of campaign finance laws would go before an administrative law judge. In addition to imposing civil penalties for violations, the administration um, could also impose criminal penalties. So, in other words, crack down on corruption harder, criminally. I love that. As President Sanders would attempt to overturn the 1976 Supreme Court ruling Buckley versus Vallejo, which ruled money is effectively speech, many campaign finance experts believe this ruling favors the wealthy who can afford to lobby the government over everyday citizens. Attempts to pass a constitutional amendment to overturn the 2010 Supreme Court ruling Citizens United versus FEC, both this and the attempt to overturn Buckley versus Vallejo, would almost certainly face a court challenge. Sanders would work with Congress to pass legislation to end super PACs, political spending by 501c4s, and other groups able to accept unlimited contributions or who do not disclose their donors. Uh, he'd also work with Congress to pass mandatory public financing laws for all federal elections. That's something we call clean elections. He wants that for all federal elections, including a new system of universal small-dollar vouchers um, that would allow voting-age Americans to donate to the candidates of their choice. So that is, Ro Khan has had a similar idea to this, Andrew Yang's had a similar idea to this, even Kirsten Gillibrand. The idea is you give all Americans a certain amount of money and they get to give it to whoever their favorite um, you know, candidates are, and that's replacing a system of billionaires and private donors and corporations donating massive amounts of money to politicians. So again, this is part of what's called a, a clean elections package. Um, now, he would also institute a lifetime lobbying ban for former members of Congress and senior staffers. So basically, he took, like, all of the ideas that are out there to end corruption, and he's like, um, you know, how about uh, we do all of them? Let's do all of them. That's what this is. That's exactly what he's doing. Clean elections, ban on lobbying, so no revolving door, going a step further and even saying, um, sorry, but the inauguration and the conventions, no, they're not going to, no, they're going to take no corporate money. They're going to be financed by the people. Guys, this is really a top-down effort from Bernie to remake the Democratic Party and make it not just, I'm going to make up a word here, uncorporate. <laughs> the goal is to make it anti-corporate so that we take on those powerful interests. That's the whole idea. He wants there to be no ambiguity no uh, systemic issues which raise the question as to whether or not politicians are corrupt. He's saying, no, we're going all the way. 
And also, by the way, massive credit because, as far as I can tell, Bernie Sanders is the only candidate who's brought up Buckley versus Vallejo, which is actually the beginning of the cases that led to the inevitable conclusion of money equals free speech. And usually what happens, and this is the bait and switch that a lot of politicians do, is they act like it was only Citizens United that made it so that money equals speech, and that's not true. So you'll have a lot of corporate Democrats say stuff like, oh, we need to go back before Citizens United. We need to reverse Citizens United. But in reality, that's a trick because money still equals speech before Citizens United. Citizens United and McCutcheon kind of shot a dead horse and made it so that, oh, we already allowed you to be corrupt. Now we're going to put that on steroids. So Bernie's going all the way back to the original sin, Buckley versus Vallejo, and he's saying, we're going to go to the root problem here. We're going to try to fix that. And by the way, there's a good argument to be made that the only way to do it is through a constitutional amendment because the Supreme Court already ruled that they think money equals free speech in a variety of cases. So now they cite precedent and they say, see, money does equal free speech. Now, we could argue that's a misinterpretation of the Constitution, and that I, th I agree with that. I think that's true. That is a misinterpretation of the Constitution. But unless you fundamentally change the makeup of the court and also have a court that's willing to overturn precedent, well, then you're, you're not going to get it done. So, and you can't just go through Congress and pass a law because a law alone is not enough because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So the Constitution always overrides any sort of federal law. So that's why, because a lot of people say, well, why not just go through Congress and do it through Congress? It's not enough. It's not enough. The Supreme Court could just look at it and slap it down and go, nope, sorry, um, we don't agree with that because the federal law, as, in the same way federal law overrides state law, the Constitution, which is the supreme law of the land, overrides federal law. So you could have, you could have it immediately slapped down even if you pass a good law through Congress. So that's why Bernie is actually saying constitutional amendment as well. I mean, this is as strong an anti-corporate plan as I've ever seen in my life. This would totally change American politics. And by the way, just so you know, because I, I don't know how many people understand this about the way politics functions, but every single problem that you see in our system today, the root of it is money in politics. Because if we had a system that wasn't corrupt, a lot of these problems would, would at the very least have a very good chance of being fixed, but very likely just flat out be fixed. So I'll give you an example. Of, this is a great one because it's so clear. Gun reform. Did you know that over 90% of Americans want to do a universal background check bill? Over 90%. You even have other forms of, of uh, gun control, like a ban on assault weapons um, and a ban on high-capacity magazines. All of those poll over 50%, and in most cases, well over 50%. So we have this problem. We have 32,000 gun deaths every single year in this country. We have over 10,000 homicides, gun homicides every year in this country. Everybody agrees it's a problem. Everybody sees the mass shootings. And we actually have consensus in the country as to what to do about it. Did you know that even when you poll Republicans, they're in favor of a universal background check bill? Get this. Even when you poll the NRA, they say, yeah, we're, we're in favor of a universal background check bill. So what gives? What's stopping it? Well, the answer is very simple. The gun manufacturers, so the people who make money off of selling guns, they give money to the leadership of the NRA, and then the leadership of the NRA buys the entire Republican Party through campaign contributions, and their strings attached, and the strings are, you don't support any kind of gun control legislation, even if it's the most common sense gun reform that's wildly popular. And they listen to them. They listen to them. Isn't it wild that even 
the membership of the NRA even disagrees with the leadership of the NRA. And again, the polls prove this. So how can we have an issue in what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy? We have an issue that's over 90% popular and nothing gets done. It's all because of corruption. Another example is uh, raising the minimum wage. 80% of the American people want to raise the minimum wage. 80%. 80%. That's overwhelming. But who has all the power? Corporations. Corporations give money to the politicians to run their campaigns. So then the politicians know their strings attached. And one of the things the corporations do not want to change is the minimum wage law. So even though 80% of the country is on the side of treat workers better, pay them more, raise the minimum wage, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because the corporations run the system. We have a corporatocracy in this country. I mean, that's what it is. So the only way to really fix these problems, climate change is another great example. The whole reason we're not doing anything on climate change is the, the oil lobby. They have a lot of wealth, a lot of power. They still have bought the entire Republican Party. They can block any and all progress, even some corporate Democrats, too. So, this, I mean, this is why we get nothing done. When you look at war, I mean, we've covered the polls before. It's something like 17% of Americans that still want to be in Afghanistan. It, it, I mean, the, the disapproval rating of, like, the war in Iraq is sky high. Nobody wants to be there. Nobody in the country wants to be there. Such a tiny percentage. But we're still there. Why? little thing called the military-industrial complex. Raytheon and Boeing, all these corporations, they pay the politicians their campaign contributions, and the politicians do their bidding. That's the way it works, guys. This isn't a conspiracy. To, to the extent it is a conspiracy, it's an open conspiracy. It's in your face. They show it. They look at the dynamics. This is what it is. This is how it works. So the only way to really fix this is to go to the root. And Bernie Sanders is proposing to seriously go to the root. He's not doing just tweaks around the edges. He's not just talking about Citizens United. He's not just talking about a democracy dollars, clean elections approach. All those things are good, but really the heart of it is you have to do a constitutional amendment. You have to do it. So having somebody in government who will spearhead that effort, who will point out the problem and explain it to people like I just did to you right now, that's giant. Because everybody understands on some visceral level they're like, yeah, you know, things are messed up, and the government's not representing us, and why is everybody pissed, and why does Congress have an approval rating of, like, 19%? Like, what's going on here? Why is everything so broken? You can just vote for Congress. Like, you just voted for them. You just did. And then you poll people, like, a month later, and they're like, I hate them. They have under 20% approval rating. How does that happen? It happens in a broken system. It happens in a totally broken system. So we got to fix it. We absolutely have to fix it, and this is definitely the way to fix it. His plan is comprehensive and far-reaching. He does things that never even occurred to me, and I live this stuff. I wrote my freaking college thesis on clean elections. But when he said, um, you know, also we're going to take the inauguration and the convention and no corporate money there, too, it's like he's trying to cut off every single avenue of potential corruption. There's nothing else to say except he's the real deal Holyfield. He's got the best plan, and um, we know what to do next. We've got to get this dude elected.
Okay, so now I will give you an update. I will give you an update as to what's happening in Turkey. Well, actually in Syria, but it's what Turkey's doing. This is, uh, I got a little BBC clip here that'll lay it out for you in, in detail, and then we'll talk about it. Turkey immediately attacked the Kurds when Trump announced that we're no longer going to be in northern Syria. So I want to show you a quick BBC report on that, and then I'll break it down a little bit more. In Syria, a new round of warfare. The town of Ras Alain under heavy bombardment. One of several just inside the border in the Kurdish-controlled northeast. It's the start of a Turkish offensive that is alarming Europe, has been condemned by America, and is bringing fresh instability to the Middle East. And once again, Syrian civilians forced to flee. A local journalist saw them go. Thousands of people, thousands of people immigrating to the south side. Uh, the, Turkish, the, Tur the Turkish army are shelling by mortars everywhere. From across the border in Turkey, we could see smoke rising in the town of Talabiyat. The BBC understands Turkish troops are now on the ground there. Well, here at the border, we have been seeing and hearing the opening salvos in Turkey's assault on northeastern Syria. In the last half an hour or so, we've heard mortar rounds and artillery fire, and there has been incoming mortar fire from Syria. President Erdogan is calling this Operation Peace Springs, but for civilians across the border on the Syrian side, this is going to feel like one more round of battle in an agonizingly long war. Turkey says the aim of this offensive is to create a safe zone along its border and allow two million Syrian refugees to go home. Today, it was creating new ones. Ankara also wants to drive out Syrian Kurdish forces it views as terrorists. That area uh, is needed for our safety and security for the Syrian refugees to go back to so that they can go back to their normal lives and there is no vacuum to be filled by any terrorist network uh, and also to make sure that Syria is not divided territorially. But Turkey's assault on the Kurds could be costly. They've been crucial in the fight against Islamic State and are holding 10,000 IS prisoners. Now they'll have to focus on resisting Turkey. Tonight at the border, rockets in the night sky. The invasion is well underway as worried nations look on. The Turks have made their move because of their long and bitter battle with Kurdish separatists. This was fighting in one of the mainly Kurdish towns in eastern Turkey in 2016. For the Turks, the move into northeastern Syria is a continuation of that fight. Kurdish separatists in Turkey, the PKK, have strong connections with Syrian Kurds. The Turkish state regards all the armed groups as terrorists. But it's much more complicated than that because of the fight against the jihadist extremists of Islamic State. While the U.S., Britain, and others bombed the self-styled caliphate, as IS called the territory it seized, 
most of the house-to-house -house combat was done by the same Syrian Kurdish fighters that Turkey is now targeting as terrorists. Since the caliphate was destroyed and recaptured, Kurdish fighters, women serving alongside men, have been a key part of the battle against the remnants of IS. The job isn't over. The caliphate is gone, but the ideology and sleeper cells remain. Now, Kurds of the SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, say they can't continue fighting IS if they have to fight Turkey. And IS has potentially been handed a big opportunity. There's also a big question about IS prisoners, most of whom are guarded by Kurds. With Kurdish attention elsewhere, the dangers of a jailbreak could increase. So it really didn't take one day after Trump made the announcement for Erdogan to, uh, to attack. And listen, that does lead me to believe that there was some sort of assurance behind closed doors where um, Trump said to Erdogan that he doesn't care what happens in the area. He doesn't care uh, what happens with the Kurds. And I'm sure Erdogan made some sort of uh, rationalization and made a case to Trump that Trump found convincing where Erdogan said like, oh yeah, no, we have all these, you know, um, Syrian refugees and we don't have anywhere to put them or anything to do. So what we have to do is we got to, you know, go back into Syria and we got to fix it. We got to go back into Syria and give these people a place where they can be back home. Like, I'm sure he made some sort of argument like that, and Trump not knowing anything about the history of the region, Trump not knowing anything about the, you know, um, the fact that Turkey has always oppressed the Kurds massively. Not that even if Trump knew that he would care, but, like, I'm sure that there was some argument made by Erdogan that Trump found convincing that left out a lot of key facts. You know, like the fact that Turkey really does want to get rid of the Kurds. And, um, you know, there are claims now of ethnic cleansing. And Turkey will, of, co will of course, argue that, no, 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 these are, they're terrorists. Like, every, everyone who we're killing here, they're terrorists. But it's kind of hard to make that case when, as the BBC accurately points out, the Kurds have been, like, the primary fighting force against ISIS. And they, they're guarding thousands of ISIS prisoners. And there was a big thing happening last night where, you know, Kurdish guards who were looking over, looking after the ISIS prisoners, when Turkey was, you know, coming in, they would have, they're going to be faced with a decision. Hey, continue to stand guard over these ISIS prisoners or run for my life, flee, and then who knows what happens when Turkey gets there. Because is the mindset of the Turkish fighters going to be, hey, man, the enemy, my enemy is my friend, so uh, these ISIS fighters... Why continue to have them locked up? Maybe they release them. We don't know. But uh, it definitely is a mess. Now, I, we spoke about this issue right when Trump made the decision on the show. And I kind of laid out for everybody how it's a lot more uh, complicated than in most of these foreign policy predicaments. Because you guys know my whole thing. I'm a hardcore non-interventionist. I think the only time we should use U.S. military force is to defend the country. And outside of that, if there's a genocide going on somewhere, then you can do it internationally. You don't do it unilaterally. You do it with the, you know, through the U.N. 
get the world involved so we're a nation among nations, not a nation above nations. Um, so that's usually my shtick when it comes to foreign policy. So you could pretty clearly predict what I'm going to say before you even go into a, a segment on it. However, this was a rare instance where I was a little bit hesitant because I had heard Noam Chomsky talk about this previously, and he's as anti-imperialist as it gets. And Noam Chomsky was making the point that, you know, the U.S. has routinely betrayed the Kurds. Um, and this is like the one region in the world where he would just keep some residual U.S. presence just to prevent basically a Turkish slaughter of the Kurds. So when I heard that, that gave me pause. I'm like, wow, okay. Um, so the argument is that for the price of just keeping, and by the way, the number of troops there was only, I saw some estimates as low as 25, and I've seen some estimates as low as, a, uh, as high as 1,000 or so. Anywhere between 25 troops and 1,000 U.S. troops in the area, and just, the, just their very presence, made it so that Turkey knew, oh, no, no, I, I can't do anything over there because if I do anything over there, God forbid we kill an American or something. <laughs> you want to talk about international crisis. So Erdogan's he's not dumb. He knew, like, oh, with the American presence there, I can't do anything. So when Trump, like, broadcasts, oh, we're going to get him out, that's why a lot of the counter-arguments were like, well, he's giving a green light to Erdogan. You go ahead. You want to do an ethnic cleansing of the Kurds? By all means. Like, that's, that's the criticism is that, like, that's what he's doing. That's what he's saying fundamentally. Now, he's come out since then, and Trump has gone in circles, and he's like, no, 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 I wasn't. No, that's not, I mean, if Turkey does the wrong thing, then we're really we're going to crack down on them economically. Yeah, but they immediately started doing the wrong thing, and you're still just talking. So now, by the way, what is the reaction? Well, to, uh, Ro Khanna laid this out in, in the perfect way. He says the following. If Turkey continues this attack against the Kurds, who are our allies against ISIS, Congress should take action which includes suspending economic aid, stopping arms and weapons sales, reconsidering their status in NATO. Yeah, I would do all of those things, literally right now. So what's my overall takeaway on this? Well, overall, I'm still torn as to what the proper move is for the U.S., and here's why. This is something nobody's bringing up. It was illegal that we were in Syria in the first place, okay? And by the way, I don't get it twisted like, oh, Trump is withdrawing all the troops from Syria. No, he's only withdrawing them from this particular region. Huge difference, huge difference. Um, but it's illegal that we were there in the first place. So when everybody acts like, oh, it's such a simple solution, well, no, because... The way that we should use our troops around the world, it should follow U.S. law and international law, and this doesn't either. So you want to have U.S. troops there? Have a vote on it in Congress. Sorry, but there's got to be civilized, humane, reasonable, objective uh, processes here that we go through. You can't just willy, oh, I don't know, we're going to send them here and send troops there and send troops there. So I do think it's a difficult issue for that reason specifically, because it's illegal we were there in the first place, so that's scandalous in the first place. But... um. I do think it's also a scandal now as well because of what's happening as a result of this action that we took and the fact that I think it's likely that, um, you know, there was Trump and Erdogan did probably talk about this behind the scenes and Trump probably gave him the green light. So I think it's scandalous either way. But as of right this second, because we live in the world we live in and we already know what's unfolding in front of our eyes, what I would say is I would just do every single thing here that Ro Khanna is, is recommending. I would immediately suspend all economic aid to Turkey. I would stop all weapons sales to Turkey, and I would immediately reconsider their status in NATO. And I would say, listen, we can, if you want, 
we can fix all this right now, but the way we fix all this right now is you get your ass out of Syria and you stop attacking the Kurds. That's what I would do. That's the best thing we could do right now because the damage was already done when it was broadcast to the world that this is what he's doing and then Turkey knew, hey, we're going to go in. But as of right this second, this is the best possible thing that we could do. There was a question beforehand what should have been done. Um, but as of right now, this is the best we could do. And also, let me address one other point because I think it's really important that we make this distinction. I told you originally that the media is going to go all in on saying we need we got to stay there. And why? Why is it? Not because they actually give a shit about the Kurds. They don't. They don't care about the Kurds at all. We're talking about the U.S. media class here. They don't care at all. Because this is a way where they can own Trump. And the way they're owning Trump is from a pro-war position. Like, it, you see a lot of outrage about what Trump's doing only when it cuts in this direction. Only when it's like, let's remove troops. Never goes in the other direction. Ever. So, the point I want to make is, they will always react like this. So in other words, if Donald Trump decides tomorrow we're going to remove all the troops from Iraq, you would see the same reaction in the media. Oh, my God, you're removing all troops from Iraq. What about the innocent civilians there? What about all the problems it's going to cause if you did it in Afghanistan? Same thing. You'd see the same thing. So what I'm here to tell you guys is this. These arguments in the case of Iraq, these arguments in the case of Afghanistan, are totally bogus. Totally bogus. I mean, we've been in Afghanistan for 18 years. We've been in Iraq for, what, 16? How much longer do you want to stay there? Like, how much longer do you want to stay there? And by the way, what is the definition of victory? What's victory and all that? Bottom line is, the Iraqis and the, uh, the Afghanis, they're going to be on their, they're going to stand on their own two feet. And they'll be equipped, they'll be fine. Yes, in Afghanistan, they're still dealing with the Taliban, but there's equal numbers of, you know, secular forces in Afghanistan and Afghanistan government officials as there are Taliban fighters. So when they make that argument of, oh, my God, look at the humanitarian disaster, look at the humanitarian crisis, pulling out is a mistake. And they will make that argument. Just know, in the case of Iraq and in the case of Afghanistan, it's not true. There was more damage done by us being there all along. But in the case of Syria, and not in all of Syria, I would withdraw from the rest of Syria, but in this particular area in Syria, it's actually like the one area where there are immediate humanitarian concerns that the argument is not totally wrong when they say, oh my God. Like, he pulled out it from this area, immediately endangered the Kurds, and uh, now there might be an ethnic cleansing as a result of it. So I just want everybody to understand, the world is a complex place. And so even though the, the media in the U.S. will copy and paste the same argument, oh, my God, you can't pull out of Afghanistan because of the humanitarian crisis and the civilian casualties, and you're going to embolden the Taliban and all that stuff. In those contexts, it's a bogus argument. Afghanistan, Iraq, bogus argument. But in the context of this particular tiny region in northern Syria, it's not, I'm sorry, but it's not really a bogus argument. And there are immediate humanitarian concerns. And um, at this point, since he already did what he did, I don't think the answer is to just send troops right back. Um, I think that the answer is 
suspending economic aid to Turkey, stopping arms and, and weapon sales, and reconsidering their status in NATO immediately. And I would have a back channel right now going on between the U.S. government and the Turkish government, and I would be, uh, I would be making them fall in line, basically, and saying this is totally unacceptable what you're doing here. So you got to work towards a diplomatic solution, and you have to use um, serious pressure on Turkey. But, yeah, at this point, I wouldn't – because what's the media going to say? The media is going to say just send troops right back in. But I think that actually at this point in time, since you already pulled out, that's going to create even more problems than it's going to solve. So it's tough, man. It's a tough situation. And, you know, what I would say to people is if you're not, like, conflicted on it, then you're not understanding the complexity of this particular issue. It is true, though. If we were going to be there in the first place, you got to do it the right way. You can't just send troops there and just act like, well, yeah, we're here. We're... And that's the other thing is what did people want? They wanted us to stay there forever. Is that also a thing that people wanted? Because I think they did. Like, if you spoke to Lindsey Graham, he might even tell you that. Like, yeah, let's just stay there forever. I don't think people are down with that either. And what you're going to see now is as the media continues to resist Trump from the right and as the media continues to resist Trump with the perspective of, you should have stayed there longer and done more war. They reflexively take the pro-war side, by the way. And they think, oh, see, we own Trump. And Trump's doing anti-war tweets nonstop now. So stupid for the U.S. to have ever gone to the Middle East. So stupid. But you're helping him when you reflexively take the pro-war position as he's pretending to be anti-war. Because here's the deal, guys. Despite this move in northern Syria, he's not anti-war. You want to know why? We're still in other parts of Syria. That's point number one. Point number two, we're still in Iraq. Point number three, we're still in Afghanistan. Point number four, we're still, we've increased drone strikes 432% under Donald Trump. And that number's probably more now. That's probably an outdated figure from two years ago. Uh, and he's waging an economic war on Iran and Venezuela. And he pulled out of the Iran deal. So it's not, the argument here is not like, let me reflexively take the pro-war position because Trump took the anti-war position. The argument here, what the media should be doing and what the Democrats should be doing is saying, oh, really? You're anti-war? Uh, why are we still in Iraq? Why are we still in Afghanistan? You should pull out of there right now. Why are you waiting there? Why was it only this one very, very specific region of Syria that you were okay pulling out of? Hmm? Why was it this one very specific region, the one region where just our presence actually was probably deterring a bloodbath? Why? Why is it that? But, of course, they're not going to know how to resist adequately because they don't know what they're doing, and they have no ideology, and to the extent they do have an ideology, it's just lazy establishment thinking. So uh, it's an ugly situation, and I hope that laid it out for you pretty clearly. Okay, next. Pat Robertson got uh, really serious on his show this week. There's a Trump decision that he's losing sleep over. Check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to say right now, 
I am absolutely appalled that the United States is going to betray those democratic forces in northern Syria, that we possibly going to allow the Turkish to come in against the Kurds. But Erdogan is a thug. He has taken control of his country as a dictator. He is a strong leader, and a, to say he's an ally of America is nonsense. He is in for himself. And the president who allowed Khashoggi to be cut in pieces uh, without any repercussions whatsoever is now allowing the Christians and the Kurds to be massacred by the Turks. And I believe, and I want to say this with great uh, solemnity, the president of the United States is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven if he permits this to happen. He never had the mandate of heaven. Um, we're not sure heaven exists. <laughs> There's no evidence, no reason to believe that. Oh, my goodness. Um, guys, here we go again. The one issue where it's now it's not just corporate media. Now it's Trump's own allies. The one issue where they go after him is when he happens to remove troops from a place. I mean, if they gave one-tenth the outrage for the places where we still have the military, it would be glorious. Of all the things Donald Trump has done, guys, he's done so much terrible stuff. He killed an eight-year-old girl in his first military raid as president. I mean, he's seizing shipments of food that are going into Venezuela, a starving country, as they pretend like they care about the people, poor people starving in Venezuela. Well, then why are you seizing shipments of food that are going into the country? Please explain that to me. Like, countless, countless, countless terrible policies, terrible proposals, implementing terrible ideas, doing tax cuts for the rich, you know, getting rid of the estate tax, cutting corporate taxes, pretending it's a tax cut for regular people as they do that, deregulating everything in sight, guaranteeing our next giant economic crash. There's, you could criticize all day, still in Iraq, still in Afghanistan, increasing drone strikes 432%. Instead, they go, oh, Mr. President, why would you remove troops from anywhere for any reason at all, ever? Now, don't get me wrong, guys. I, I actually do think this, this situation in Syria is incredibly complex. And the way in which Trump went about this is kind of like a green light to Turkey and Erdogan. Go ahead, do what you want with the Kurds. We don't give a shit. So there is a problem there, and there is a very serious problem there. But, again, I just want you to take note of this very basic fact that the only kind of resistance that is mustered up by mainstream media, by the Democrats, and by Pat Robertson, it's from a pro-war perspective. Oh, my God, how could you? Don't you know we're supposed to micromanage the entire world? Don't you know we're supposed to have our troops everywhere? Don't you know that this, it's the, what, it's the mandate of God to have U.S. troops deployed everywhere? By the way, illegally, because that's what it is. There was no approval for troops to be sent there. It didn't go through Congress. It's illegal under U.S. law and international law. But no, that, I mean, this is the one area, uh, I'm not sure uh, Pat Robertson has ever disagreed with Donald Trump. The one area he disagreed, sir, send those troops back in. You know, Pat Robertson, if you close your eyes, he sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? Because that's what Jesus would do. Jesus would be like, yes, I sayeth unto thee, make sure 
you keep troops deployed all around the world. He wouldn't. He would have been anti-war thoroughly. I mean, this is a dude who supported the invasion of Iraq, Pat. We freaking did an offensive war against a country that didn't attack us, killed a minimum 200,000 civilians, and we implemented a worldwide torture program. And not once did he go out there and say, who would Jesus torture? I mean, if Pat really wants to be concerned about something, how about the fact that, what is it, 8 million people lost health insurance under Donald Trump? We have... Tens of thousands of people dying every year because they don't have basic health care in this country. And this is what he's concerned about. I'm telling you, man, it is creepy. I really feel like we live in the twilight zone because the most resistance to Trump is when he does something like this. And by the way, he might end up winning this exchange in the court of public opinion for the very simple reason that now he's on Twitter acting nonstop like I hate Middle East wars, we should have never been there, I'm bringing them home, isn't that wonderful? That's how he's portraying all this, and everybody is reflexively taking the opposite position. Mainstream media, Democrats, even Trump's allies now, they're all taking the position of like, Sir, we must continue war. So he might actually win this exchange, when again, as I pointed out before, the response from the media, the response from Democrats, the response from everybody should have been to Trump. You're not anti-war. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. You're still massively increasing drone strikes. You're waging economic war on on Iran and Venezuela. You're massively pro-war, dude. You're massively pro-war. So don't let him take that mantle because it's nonsense. It just so happens the one place where he wants to remove troops is arguably the one place where our presence was preventing an ethnic cleansing. And by the way, it's not like we're fully getting out of Syria. There are other areas of Syria where U.S. troops are. So it's not like... Just understand that. Trump broke everybody's brain. Even his own allies are totally unable to respond to him in a convincing manner. He's not a convincing person, but next to everybody else, he seems massively convincing because he's making his case. What was this from Pat Robertson? Um, I don't know. Keep the troops there because um, God or something? Come on, bro. Come on, man. That, does that work on anybody anymore? I mean, I know you've been on TV since, like, 1968, but uh, sweet Jesus, man. Now, uh, wait until you see their reaction. If he ever actually pulls out of Iraq and Afghanistan, you'll see the same reaction. The same reaction. Sir, you must keep our troops there forever because it's the mandate of God. So somehow a lot of the people who are countering Trump are even dumber than Trump, which is wild to say, but it's totally true. All right. Let's do the Ellen story. I spoke a little bit about this already on Kyle and Corin, and um, but I'm going to do it again here. Some of you might already know what I'm about to say, but uh, I feel compelled to do this as a standalone segment. Ellen DeGeneres got in some trouble on social media for palling around with George W. Bush, and she responded on her show and effectively doubled down.
But during the game, they showed a shot of George and me laughing together, and uh, so people were upset. They thought, why is a gay Hollywood liberal sitting next to a conservative Republican president? Didn't even notice I'm holding the brand new iPhone 11. And, uh, but a lot of people were mad, and they did what people do when they're mad. They tweet, and, uh, but here's one tweet that I loved. This uh, person says, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again. And, um, Here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay that we're all different. For instance, I wish people wouldn't wear fur. I don't like it, but, but I'm friends with people who wear fur. And I, I'm friends with people who are furry, as a matter of fact. I have <laughs> friends who should tweeze more. And I, I have... But just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. When I say be kind to one another, I don't mean only to people that think the same way that you do. I mean be kind to everyone. Doesn't matter. Let me explain why this is beyond ridiculous. They always twist what people are saying here. So nobody says how could you, Ellen? He's a conservative Republican. That wasn't the point people were making. People were saying, and by the way, they're factually correct about this, oh, he's a torture war criminal. That's the point people were making. Oh, okay, so you're going to hang out and normalize a torture war criminal, somebody who should be in The Hague, somebody who should be behind bars for his crimes against humanity. You're going to normalize and launder the image of a person who, you know, five, six years ago, everybody understood. Oh, whoa, yeah, that dude. Mm-mm-mm-mm. There was a, he had like a 28% approval rating or thereabouts when he left office. You want to know why? Because he was one of the worst presidents that the U.S. ever had. Now, that's not, again, the worst president thing is not even the reason why it's not okay to hang out with him. Because if he was just the worst president, but he wasn't a war criminal, that would be fine. <laughs> But he's not just the worst president. He's also a war criminal. So, I mean, this is why people are mad at you is because there's this, like, smug indifference to the real-world harms caused by George W. Bush. And it's a smug indifference that's birthed in the fact that, well, you're a multimillionaire. He's a multimillionaire. You're famous. He's famous. Also, hey, we're in the Trump era, and everybody despises Trump in Hollywood. So it's like, well, now, oh, what? don't you miss the days of George W. Bush? Like, that's the reflexive anti-Trumpism that leads people to being totally amoral, vacuous losers. And so it's this perfect storm of, like, ignorance, immorality, and sanctimony for anybody who's willing to accurately say, hey, what's going on here? That's just totally insufferable. Like, so, and I, I want to be clear about this. If Ellen was hanging out with somebody who she just disagreed with, if she was hanging out with a conservative Republican, I, I, my commentary would be the exact opposite of what it is today. My commentary would be like, I don't get why people are pissed off. Get over it. It's no big deal. Like, that is literally just her hanging out with somebody that you all disagree with. So, I, listen, I'm, and I'm like, I mean that, too. Like, even if she was hanging out with somebody who's loathsome, a bad person, like Tucker Carlson or something, and everybody's like, oh, oh, look at this. 
I'd be like, eh, but who gives a shit? No, seriously, who cares? Because we all have, like, and granted, they wouldn't be family, they would be friends, but, like, we all have families, and in your family, there's somebody with incredibly draconian political beliefs. At least one. At least one. You know, probably more than one. But there's, a, there's somebody somewhere down that line who's like, you know, thinks Hannity is Albert Einstein. Like, or thinks Hannity's Noam Chomsky. Like, that's out there. So, it's such basic stuff. Like, it's kindergarten-level, preschool-level stuff to be like, hey, man, you should try to get along with people you don't agree with. Oh, thank you. Oh, that was so profound. That was so brilliant. Like, oh, get along with people you don't agree with. See, I thought I walk up to people who don't agree with me on everything and immediately spit in their eye. That's right. No, nobody thought that. Nobody thought that. Nobody thinks that. Nobody would do that. Everybody who she's giving this sanctimonious rant to, every single one of them gets along with people who don't agree with them. Every single, literally every one of them. Nobody goes around their life like, I have a permanent stick up my butt, and I would make sure to talk to nobody who doesn't agree with me already on everything. Thank you very much. Imagine you meet people and you're immediately like, what are your thoughts on abortion? Nobody does that. Nobody does that because we're, we're not silly people. We're not silly people. We, we're not blockheads. So it basically what she's doing is she's strawmanning all of her critics. The strawman is, oh, you guys are just not okay with hanging out with people you disagree with. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. Nobody said that at all. If you read the nature of the if you cared enough to get off your high horse and read just a little bit of the nature of the criticism against you, if she took the time to really read like four tweets on it, she would be like, oh, they're all saying the same thing. Would you look at that? And I know because I saw every single tweet was like, well, no, he's a war criminal and he has the blood of hundreds of thousands of innocent people on his hands. He's a torturer. Like this was the nature of every single criticism, every single one. But she straws, she strawmans it, and she spins it, and she acts like, oh, I guess people just don't want to hang out with people who they disagree with. Well, what a, what a convenient little escape for you, where you paint all of your critics as, like, petty, authoritarian, irrational people who are just high off their own purity. But that's, what, that's none of them. None of them said that. In fact, I don't think if she really did hang out with just somebody who she disagrees with, it wouldn't be a story. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. But in the case of George W. Bush, it is a story, particularly because he's a war criminal. And now what are people doing? And I'm so happy they're doing this. They're taking this video of Ellen talking about, oh, me hanging out with George Bush, and you should get along with people who you disagree with. And they're putting behind her, on the screen behind her, they're editing in all of the pictures from the Iraq War, all of the torture. And there are a lot of pictures of the torture that went on, like at Abu Ghraib, for example, um, all the pictures of dead kids, terrorized families running away. Guys, you really, you, you have to grapple with what actually happened in Iraq. And let's also make the case, because it, it's true, it wasn't just a mistake. Because that's the furthest left position you're allowed to take in elite circles. The furthest left position is the, what the Obama position was, which was, I think it was a strategic blunder, or another word that they like to use, a quagmire. Well, I'm here to tell you and burst that pretty little liberal bubble that a lot of people are living in. It wasn't just a mistake. It wasn't just a quagmire. It was an active decision. It was a choice that was made by people in power in the most powerful government that ever existed in human history with the most powerful military that ever existed in human history. It was a choice with a government with agency to offensively attack a country that, that didn't attack us and kill civilians. That was a choice. Torture was a choice. 
It was a choice. We have agency. We meant to do it. It was, whoopsie, it was a mistake. No, 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 it was on purpose. It was very much on purpose. So that these are crimes. These are crimes. It wasn't a whoopsie. It wasn't a, oh, my bad. No, 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 it was, we are actively going to choose to topple this government illegally, offensively. And oh, would you look at that? If all these civilians happen to die, what do I care? They're just Iraqis. They're just Iraqis, whatever. That's the mindset. So this is what people are objecting to, Ellen, is your thought process that, like, well, he's one of our guys, meaning he's American, so he meant well, so that's good enough, right? And also, well, fuck Trump. So since fuck Trump, now I can go back and and revitalize and, and launder the image of George W. Bush. And this is all, like, on a subconscious level, this is what's going on in her mind. You guys don't hang out with people you disagree with? I certainly don't hang out with war criminals. There were a lot of really funny tweets about this. One of them was like, about that picture of me being seen with Jared Fogle at the baseball game. <laughs> Jared Fogle, known pedophile at the baseball game. You know, I was on, on Kyle and Corn. I was making the argument of, uh, I was just hanging out with Mussolini. Whoa. You know, oh, I guess you don't want to hang out with people you disagree with. Like, you could fill in the blank with so many people who everybody would get it if you did it. You know, I'm like, I'm just, it's Charles Manson. What, you don't like hanging out with people you disagree with? So, I mean, when you look at, okay, serial killer, uh, serial pedophile, whatever it might be, like, we're talking about, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about war criminal, which is arguably even in a worse category. So, that's why people are upset at it. And you all know, everybody here knows. Change George W. Bush out with somebody else, and even Ellen would be like, yeah, I shouldn't be hanging out with him. So who? Let me give you an example. Harvey Weinstein. If she's hanging out with Harvey Weinstein, and people are criticizing her, she wouldn't, she wouldn't be caught hanging out with Harvey Weinstein in today's day, and she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. Because in, in the Hollywood circle she runs in, there's now the, ooh, the taboo, and no, no, can't do it. But George W. Bush, well, I mean... The war crimes were a long time ago. They were just Iraqis. He meant well. The torture, I mean, he was just trying to protect the country, right? You need a, a never-ending parade of apologetics and, and rationalizations to try to make it seem like it's just a disagreement. If it was just a disagreement, Ellen, we wouldn't be talking about it. We wouldn't be talking about it if it was just a disagreement. I would be defending you if it was just a disagreement. I don't care how far right on the spectrum you go, if you're talking about somebody who just disagrees with people, that's fine. That's fine. And then the other layer that people put on, this is just the cherry on top, because again, to me, the biggest thing is the war criminal thing. But the cherry on top is that George W. Bush in his 2004 campaign ran on doing a constitutional amendment to make sure gays can never get married. So it is kind of like, you know, a famous black person hanging out with George Wallace, the number one segregationist in the country who ran on segregation. That is kind of what this is like. But don't get me wrong, I don't think she knows that, and um, I don't think she would accept that, but it's irrelevant because this is what everybody sees because everybody's correct. Everybody's right in how they're viewing this. So no, Ellen, you know, you're allowed to hang out with people you disagree with. We all hang out with people we disagree with. We all have family members. We all have friends. It, it, we, we live in the world. <laughs> like, we live in the world, all right? We get it. Like, we understand. There's like almost half this country voted for Donald Trump. We all know people who voted for Trump. Like, we, this, this is the way it works. We got it. We got it. But that sanctimonious pivot, that straw man that you created, is not the critique against you. So, 
maybe you should actually listen to what your critics are saying and um, take it to heart and adjust accordingly. Because I guarantee you, this does have negative effects. And the negative effects are whoever happens to watch Ellen, and she has a zillion fans. She has so many fans, it's insane. Like, her audience was cheering her commentary here. And, like, what you've just done is you've humanized and you've laundered the image of a person who is a who committed the worst one of the worst atrocities in the modern era. And now that's just a disagreement. And what that does is that really devalues the lives that were taken by George W. Bush. That really devalues his actions and makes it seem like it's just a disagreement. You're for torture, I'm not. It's just a disagreement. You're for illegally and offensively invading a country that didn't attack us and killing hundreds of thousands of civilians, I'm not. It's just a disagreement. And you guessed it, fast forward 20 years from now, some celebrities will be uh, embracing Trump. When we get the next Republican president, and they hate that next Republican president just as much, they'll revitalize Trump, assuming he's still alive, which is a long shot. <laughs> but they will. They'll, they'll revitalize Trump. And they'll act like, what? What? I mean, are you just mad because I'm hanging out with people that you disagree with? One of the great things about social media is that it has democratized national dialogue. And so you could argue, hey, sometimes that misfires. Sometimes we disagree with the outrage mob. But every now and then you find a diamond in the rough, man. And um, this viewpoint, which would have never been expressed previously, is now being expressed all over the place. And you have all of social media, all of new media, to be right there along with you to point out how... She's being dishonest, disingenuous, she's pivoting, and she's strawmanning her opponents, and she's not actually listening to the criticism, which is a very substantive criticism. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, we got Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, and we got Amy Klobuchar shoving her foot directly in her mouth. Stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and more.
tell you guys something about the weather here, alright? It's goddamn miserable, and I can't take it. It's been, for the past, I'm not sure I've seen the sun in three days. I don't get people who enjoy fall. I just don't, I just don't get people who enjoy fall. Um, and I'm talking, of course, specifically in the Northeast. People in the Northeast who enjoy fall, I don't get you. I'm sorry. I get it if you enjoy fall and you live in, like, Arizona or something, because it went from being, like, 100 degrees to maybe 80-something. <laughs> so that's understandable. You don't want to die. Um, but, yeah, here in New York, man, you get... Uh, recently, it's been... It'll be, like, warm until late September, and then it'll change. This year, it went until, like, the second week of October, maybe, and then it fell off a cliff. Early October, we had some days, like, 85 degrees, beautiful, and then now it just absolutely fell off a cliff. And uh, it's, like, 55 degrees, which isn't bad in the spring. When you're coming out of it being 30 degrees and it gets to 55, you're like, ooh, this is toasty. When you're coming off of, like, 75 degrees and it hits 55 degrees, you're like, uh, uh, is it below freezing, sir? <laughs> and that's what's going on now. But the worst part is that, like, those days where there's just zero hope of the sun peeking out for even a second, those days where you look up at the sky and it's just nothing but grayness, grayness, a little damp and cold and like drizzly and just no sun anywhere in sight. I don't care what anybody says, bro. Like 90% of people have just a little touch of that seasonal mood swings. I'm not going to say depression because depression is serious and that's not, you know, you don't casually throw that around. But at least 90% of us have that like seasonal mood swings thing where we're like, you think you're good, but if you really compare yourself to a beautiful 70 degree day, you're like, God damn it, I'm miserable, man. What's going on here? So, anyway, that's my long-winded way of saying, please, sun, come out. I miss the sun. <laughs> okay, now that I've had my bitching session, let's do some more bitching. All right. I'm going to queue up a Donald Trump ad here. So Donald Trump made a political ad attacking Joe Biden, and um, there's been a firestorm around this. And as a result of it, CNN banned the ad. And they banned the ad because they say, hey, this is inaccurate, and how could you? And, you know, Joe Biden's been losing it. Joe Biden sent a letter to CNN scolding them. Again, this is the second letter that the Biden campaign has sent. And the letter says, basically, don't talk about Hunter Biden at all. Don't talk about my family profiting off of my public profile at all. He's demanding stuff of the media. And he thinks this is like totally, oh, yes, it's fine. Well, I want to see the media now turn around and immediately accuse him of why are you being like Trump and saying fake news? When Bernie accurately criticizes the media, they say, why are you being like Trump? Biden is sending, like, cease and desist letters, <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, sir, if you say so. So anyway, this is Donald Trump's attack ad on Joe Biden. CNN said they're not going to play it. And let me show you the rest of the reaction after you watch the ad. 
Joe Biden promised Ukraine a billion dollars if they fired the prosecutor investigating his son's company. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. Got fired. But when President Trump asks Ukraine to investigate corruption, the Democrats want to impeach him. And their media lapdogs fall in line. They lost the election. Now they want to steal this one. Don't let them. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Okay, now. Is that a hard-hitting ad that actually would land politically? Yes. I'm sorry it is, man. I don't... And if you don't see that, I think you're being obtuse on on purpose. Because that is. That's a hard-hitting ad, and it's going to land. If people don't follow this stuff closely and they see that ad, they're going to be like, Oh, shoot! What? So it is, it is. You got you to keep it real. You have to keep it real. Now, having said that, is the argument that it's, like, it's factually wrong kind of true? And sorry for the beeping. As you know, it's a day that ends in Y, so my work laptop won't shut the fuck up. The answer is yes, it's a little bit misleading, and here's why. The argument that Democrats are making, they're saying, hey, hold on now. So Biden uh, was dangling that billion dollars, that billion dollar subsidy over the head of Ukraine to fire the prosecutor. This is going to annoy me to no end, man. I'm just going to unplug it for a little bit. I'll fix it in between the segment. The answer is yes, it's a little misleading, and here's why. Democrats say, well, hold on, yes, he dangled that billion-dollar subsidy over the head of the Ukrainian government and said, you know, you have to do X, Y, and Z to get it. But the X, Y, and Z was, they claim, fire this really corrupt prosecutor and hire this non-corrupt prosecutor. And the evidence that they use is, Well, the corrupt one was not investigating Joe Biden's son thoroughly. And the one that Joe Biden wanted them to hire investigated Joe Biden's son thoroughly. So that's the argument that they make, that Biden's doing the opposite of what Trump is claiming. Biden's dangling that billion-dollar subsidy over the head of Ukraine not to protect his son's butt, but to make sure that Ukraine hires a non-corrupt prosecutor, and that prosecutor looked even more into his son. So that's the point that they're making. Now, I still think that's a little bit of a Weasley claim because ultimately the guy ended up dropping, you know, the prosecution, dropping the case into Joe Biden's son, even though Joe Biden's son, Hunter, was getting $50,000 from a Ukrainian energy firm. And I have a bridge to sell you if you think that that's like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Vice President's son getting $50,000 a month for not knowing anything about energy but sitting on a Ukrainian energy Uh, company board. So I think that's a little bit of a Weasley claim. And also, you can object on principle to, like, why should the U.S. president be dangling, you know, a subsidy over the head of a foreign country with strings attached that he wants? Like, isn't that in and of itself corruption? Isn't that in and of itself meddling? Um, 
it just seems like a little bit of a stretch. And it also seems like the Biden people are missing the bigger point. And the bigger point is the $50,000 a month in and of itself is buying influence, and it's a massive problem. And if you say, well, no, I don't agree with that, Kyle. Okay, well, then you're going to have a lot more to answer because there's like eight other specific instances of Joe Biden's family being corrupt and profiting off of his public profile. It's just a fact. I mean, we went over it. Family members who open up lobbying firms that overlap with Joe's committee assignments. Family members who profited off the military industrial complex as Joe was overseeing the occupation of Iraq. There's, it's, there's so much there there. There is smoke and there is fire. And they try to nip it in the bud by, by nuance trolling. No, well, that exact prosecutor that he was dangling the money over the head of Ukraine for, that one was actually, you know, he wanted to get rid of the more corrupt one and wanted to bring in the least corrupt one. You're nuance trolling. You're nitpicking to death. Fact of the matter is, he is corrupt. That is the fact. I'm sorry. Now, but here's the response, guys, and this is what drives me crazy, and they won't make this response. The response is, Donald Trump is going to accuse somebody else of corruption? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Jared and Ivanka, in one year in the White House, one year, made $82 million. Let me explain something to you. If Daddy wasn't president, I wouldn't have made anywhere near $82 million. It wouldn't have been close. Not remotely close. So there is pay-to-play going on with them. Donald Trump taking... $300,000 from Saudi Arabia at his D.C. hotel and then approving a weapons deal for them, a multi-billion dollar weapons deal, as they commit a genocide, and then overriding Congress when Congress says, no, 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 we can't do the weapons deal because of what's happening in Yemen. He overrode them and said, no, we are going to do it. So, you're corrupt. You're corrupt. But instead of Biden and the Democrats going on the offense and pointing that out, why doesn't everybody in the country know that Ivanka and Jared got $82 million in one year in the presidency? When you want to talk about nepotism, you're going after Hunter Biden for sitting on the board. Ivanka's in the White House. <laughs> She's hired in the White House. So, but instead of going on the offense, instead of saying, no, 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 here's your corruption and yours is way worse, and yours is leading to a genocide in Saudi Arabia, instead of doing that, what do they do? Biden sending strongly worded letters to CNN. Stop covering this. CNN is banning the, the ad for saying it's, it's, it's factually wrong. Well, yes and no. It's Parts of it are misleading, but the core of it is Hunter Biden's corrupt, and that's kind of true. If they just did an ad saying he got $50,000 from a Ukrainian energy company per month, my guess is CNN would also ban that ad, and that ad wouldn't be wrong at all. Now, the final point is, and this is so sad, man, and this is why I think there's still a chance Donald Trump wins re-election even at this late date where there's a scandal every three and a half seconds and every day, it's like the walls are closing in, everything's falling apart. Look at what Vox says. Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and most news networks won't take down a false Trump ad about Joe Biden. Okay, so now they've moved on to just call it, the ad isn't just misleading. Now the ad is uh, just false. Just false. What do you mean? What's, but there is a video of him saying, hey, a billion dollars, you know, hey, you better do this or you don't get a billion dollars. Some would argue that alone is a problem. He said it. Was it a freaking deep fake image? No. So false is a little bit of a strong term there. I would agree with misleading. False? No, you wouldn't say false. But now you have media networks and, and media outlets basically 
begging our Silicon Valley oligarchs to please be the ministry of truth for us and do what's right. So they want Facebook, they want YouTube, they want Twitter, and they want the news networks to make decisions as to what you're allowed to see and not allowed to see in terms of ads based on their interpretation of what is true and what is false. Well, I got news for all of you. I don't believe them for a second. I don't trust their judgment. Why would I trust their judgment? These are the same people. You're going to beg the media outlets to do it? What about that guy at the Washington Post who every other day comes out with a Bernie Sanders hit piece where he's, Medicare for all, not Bernie's wrong about Medicare for all. It's actually bad and not workable. The numbers don't add up and blah, 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 blah. That guy is wrong. That guy's wrong. But that's the, but Jake Tapper ran with it. Washington Post ran with it. There, there are countless examples of these people who you think are the paragons of virtue and truth getting things dead wrong. So my question is, who's going to fact-check the fact-checkers? Oh, that's right. You have no way of ameliorating that, no way of fixing that problem. You're just saying they're going to get the final word, and that's the end of the conversation. What do you do in a situation where there's a lot of gray area, and it's not black or white? The nature of a fact-check is it's black or white. It's true or false. There's no, like, hey, well, this part's true, this part's not true, here's a gray area, here's the nuance. Of, they don't do that. They don't do that. What do you also do in a situation where the thing that everybody believes turns out to be the thing that's bogus? Namely, Russiagate. Oh my God, the walls are closing in. Oh my God, it's the beginning of the end. Oh my God, this thing about the metaphor with Julian Assange. <clears throat> Wrong, that didn't happen. Oh, we're going to get on my collusion. We're going to get on my collusion. We're going to get on my collusion. But you didn't. But you didn't. I said it. Not many other people were saying it. A handful of other people were saying it, but not many other people were saying it. Every nation media outlet would have told you, oh, y'all, dear guys, there's going to be collusion. They're going to get collusion, collusion. All of you were wrong. You're going to pull down your own articles? Is that what you're going to do? Is that what you're going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to take all the Republican ads that mentioned the Mueller report and went after Mueller and say, sorry, factually wrong. Going to pull it down. These guys, they're a lot dumber than they think they are. <laughs> and the idea that, like, you're going to be rescued by frickin' Mark Zuckerberg making decisions about what you can and cannot see is ludicrous. That idea is insanity. So a begging Silicon Valley oligarchs to censor for you. I mean, the whole tone of this article is like, and some people won't even pull down this Trump ad. If you really want to go through with a fine-tooth comb, man, this will backfire on every political faction in this country, guaranteed. Except maybe the corporate Democrats who, they will bend over backwards to act like what they're saying is always true, when of course it's not. But these people have their own biases and their own political opinions, and they're not objective, and they will make decisions in accordance with that. So I'm sorry, man, but if you're begging for this sort of censorship because you don't like Trump, oh, my God, have you lost the plot, man. You really have lost the plot. Because with the same ferocity they go after Trump, they'll double that, and that's how they'll go after the left. I know because they already do it. Okay, now I have to fix this fucking thing. Please don't beep anymore. Up, up. Second I touch that computer, it's going to beep again. The second I do that. All right, next. Oh, 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 oh,
Shut the fuck up. God, I hate you so much for the burning passion. Some people are thinking, why don't you just fucking mute the computer and let it be? Well, I need the computer for uh, video segments that I have to cut to. And um, outside of that, I can't leave it unplugged for too long because the thing will fucking die on me and I need it. All right. There's a cloud in my boot jar. Let's do it. Amy Klobuchar basically came out as a Republican here. Um, now, you might say that's an unfair characterization, and the beeping McBeepington is going to drive me crazy yet again. I need you to shut the fuck up. Okay, finally shut the fuck up from the top one more time. Nope. There's no way out of this, guys. There's no way out of this. Amy Klobuchar basically came out as a Republican in this video that you're about to see. You might think that's harsh, but not really. It's not really that harsh. Um, she spoke to a guy named Musadiq Badar, who's a reporter for CBS News. And here's what she said about some of the main policy issues that the left cares about. I just don't agree with these policies, and I also think that they know that they most likely won't go through because they don't make any sense when you really take down the um, uh, veneer and get them off a bumper sticker and start looking at them, but they just keep promising it. And I just don't agree. I actually don't agree because I think it's not their best policy. They may be bold ideas. I think they're bad ideas, and there's a better way to do this. Because people like it. They like to hear that they're going to get everything free. Right? They like it. That's how Andrew Yang started his speech at the a debate. It was about giving people free $1,000. So, you know, it, and that was from his campaign directly. So that is a lot of what the discussion is right now. And I think people know that we've got to make the economy work better for them. And so to me, this isn't necessarily about a free college or a free degree. It's about how can you help people afford the education that they want on the path they want and have it fit with our economy. Why doesn't it fit with our economy? Why doesn't it fit with our economy? We already have free education up to 12th grade. We, the model is already there. The model is, hey, we already do it from K to 12. That's all free. That's all paid for with tax dollars, free at the point of service. The idea is, hey, instead of K to 12, make it K to 16 or preschool to 16. That's all it is. I mean, okay, so the thing that's so frustrating about her, and she is 100% echoing Republican arguments, is they just say stuff, and there's no historical um, or contextual background for it. So she says, like, well, it doesn't work. What does that mean, it doesn't work? Of course it works. We have countless examples of other countries where it does exactly that. It works. So it's not. It's just a feeling that she has. It is America, and we don't already do it. Therefore, it's illegitimate. But that's not an argument. That's not a point. We don't already do it. It doesn't work, really. Well, why don't you talk to, oh, I don't know. Here are the places that have um, free college. 
Brazil, Germany, Finland, France, Norway, Slovenia, and Sweden. They all effectively have free college. And it doesn't work, except in the places where it does work. And by the way, I should also mention, in basically every relevant statistical category, those, uh, many of these places kick our butt. They kick our butt. So the idea that it doesn't work is wrong. And also the idea, everybody, everybody wants, likes to hear that they're getting free stuff. Well, we're not talking about everything being free. We're talking about some very basic things being free. So would Amy Klobuchar, like, berate people because we have free, a free fire department? And if your house catches fire, you know, they come and they put it out, no questions asked, you don't have to pay anything? Does she think, like, that's, like, you're giving away free goodies to people, making sure their houses don't burn down? No, because she's baked that into the cake of how she already views everything. But if it's anything that we don't already do in this country specifically, then all of a sudden she comes out and says, oh, it's not possible, we can't do it, it doesn't work. Everybody likes free stuff. Everybody wants to hear that they're going to get free stuff. Well, maybe the things that people are being told that they're going to get free are the exact things that are so basic and so bare minimum that that idea sells. I mean, if somebody were to run a campaign and their whole idea in running the campaign is like, I don't know, everybody gets a free video game console, I doubt that that person would do as well as the people who are saying we're going to have free health care. Why? Because I think people are smart enough to make distinctions between like consumer goods that kind of should be a matter of choice and things that should be off the table in a civilized society, stuff like health care, stuff like education. Um, and then the part that got under my skin probably the most is the idea that it's like, you know, they're running on an idea, you put it on a bumper sticker. As if like, because an idea is concise and digestible, therefore it's stupid. That's not true. There are plenty, plenty of things that can go on a bumper sticker that are really stupid, but there's also plenty of things that can go on a bumper sticker, bumper sticker that are actually really intelligent and make sense. If you put end the Iraq war on a bumper sticker, that doesn't mean ending the Iraq war is stupid by definition. But in her mind, she thinks that's an argument against it. Well, you know, they have these things you can put on a bumper sticker, and that's not good. So in other words, she's trying to make a virtue of the fact that she had all of her plans are really wonky and technocratic and incredible to under, uh, incredibly difficult to understand, and they're only tweaks around the edges. So she would have to give us a you know a 10-minute uh, spiel about uh, means testing certain programs that only apply to certain income level groups that only cover a percentage of the service that's being uh, requested. Like the fact that it takes you a long time to make a point doesn't mean that you're correct, doesn't mean that your plans make sense, doesn't mean that your plans are better. The thing that's so frustrating about the Amy Klobuchar's and the John Delaney's is the following. You ready for this? What does she stand for? What's she fighting for? Go. You got nothing, right? You got nothing. Because really what it boils down to is Amy Klobuchar wants to be president for Amy Klobuchar. John Delaney wants to be president for John Delaney. These are corporate centrist neoliberals. So their ideology is tweaks around the edges. You know, they're not as bad as Republicans on social issues. They don't hate minorities as in an, as an upfront way. In As an upfront way? That sounds very clunky, but I think you get the point. As much of an upfront way? Whatever. Um, but when it comes to the economy, again, their programs are ridiculous. They still believe that even in many basic bare minimum ways, the market is always the way to go. 
And that's a dying ideology because we have, we have decades of evidence that that's indeed not true. We have people that are massively struggling as a result of that philosophy being implemented. So she's, she's angry and she's sour because she's getting lapped by candidates who actually have, stand for something. And five, she brought up Yang there. Yeah, Yang, if I ask you what's Yang running for, the first thing that comes to mind is UBI. Because he actually believes in it, he cares about it, and he's fighting for it. And by the way, it's not a bad idea. So, because we can actually say what other candidates stand for because they believe in something. You think that's a negative against them? It's just embarrassing. So, to her point, oh, they don't work. Yes, they do. They work. These plans work. Oh, it's just free stuff. No, it's only the bare minimums, the basic necessities that are free, which, by the way, they should be. But it's not saying everything is free, as they, she smugly derives it. And the idea, well, if it's on a bumper sticker, and, you know, there's a reason why you're polling at 1%, and others with better philosophies are polling way higher. Now, thankfully for Amy Klobuchar, her, somebody who represents her philosophy is still hanging on there to the lead, Joe Biden, but I think that's all smoke and mirrors. But um, she's not offering anything, and she's bitter, and she has no real ideology, and as a result of that, she gives vacuous commentary that makes her sound exactly like a Republican. Okay, next. Next, Meech. I have something for you here that I think is uh, a legit national scandal, but it's really going to get no coverage on the mainstream TV networks. So CBS says the following, America's richest 400 families now pay a lower tax rate than the middle class. 400 richest families, lower tax rate than the middle class. The 400 richest U.S. families now pay a lower overall tax rate than the middle class the first time that's happened in 100 years, according to economists Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel uh, Zuckman, factoring in federal, state, and local taxes, those ultra-wealthy households pay a total rate of about 23%. That compares with just over 24% for the bottom half of households. The U.S., quote, looks like the tax system of a plutocracy, Saez and Zuckman say. So they go on to explain that the mega-rich, like the richest 400 families in the country, they pay a lower tax rate than the rich and the upper middle class. So in other words, in this country, we're supposed to have a progressive tax rate, which means the less you make, the lower a rate you pay for taxes. And then when you go up the income scale, that gradually increases. 
So basically the way it works in the country today is you have the middle class pay about 24%. When you go to the upper middle class, that kicks up a little bit, okay, around 28%. Then when you go to, like, the rich as in, I want to say, like, kind of standard rich, like think of a doctor or something who's been a surgeon for three decades, say the guy's got four or five million dollars or whatever, okay, that dude, they pay, goes up again, the rate goes up again, they're paying effectively about 30%, all right, but then when you get to the 400 richest families, plummets right back down, and like I said, they're paying 23%, so the richest 400 families pay more than the bottom half of households, or I'm sorry, did I mess that up? The richest 400 families pay less than the bottom half of households. So we have quite literally, it's not even a flat tax. It's a regressive tax. It would be a flat tax if they both paid effectively the same rate, but no, you actually have, it's a slightly lower rate that the mega rich pay. Now why, how, how does this happen? Well, I mean, very simply put, they have an army of lawyers that finds all these loopholes and deductions and... Also, they go on to point out very clearly in this research, oh, it's because of Trump's uh, tax bill. Trump's tax bill was like the Bush tax cuts on steroids. And it, it created basically the ability for the mega wealthy to wiggle their way out of paying their fair share. And do so almost in, in a comical way where, again, they're paying a lower rate than the bottom half of the country. So, you know, giant cut in the estate tax, giant cut in the corporate tax rate, Obviously, they have all these um, tax havens that they're sending their money to, which allows them to dodge taxes. Again, an army of lawyers that finds a way to wiggle out of paying for it. So what we're seeing here, guys, is the logical result of decades and decades and decades of money in politics and the rich lobbying the government to do their bidding. And this is the result. The result is we have a regressive tax system where, uh, you know, a bigger share of the burden is paid by the poorest half of the country than the richest 400 people. And that last line really says something, doesn't it? This is what the tax system of a plutocracy looks like. That's how we're functioning. And just so everybody knows, this is unsustainable unsustainable. This is a dynamic that we've seen. When you go back to the Great Depression, for example, take a look at the amount of income that's brought in by the top 1%. So during a time where we're economically healthy, the richest 1% never bring in more than about 10% of the national income. So the richest 1% take in about 10% of the national income. During the Great Depression, that number was 23%. The top 1% was making 23% of the nation's income. What is it today? It's about 23%. The richest 1% pull in about 23% of the nation's income. So when you have this level of extreme wealth and income inequality, what happens is, Average people don't have the ability to pay for 
the consumer goods that are being produced by the so-called captains of industry. There's a famous old quote from Henry Ford where he said, yeah, I pay my workers well. I need them to make enough money to afford a Ford, to afford a, a car, a Ford. Like, yeah, well, I have to sell them to somebody, so i got to pay my workers enough so they can buy them. So now we're not, you know, we're not living in this country with that philosophy implemented. Now it's the opposite. It's a race to the bottom. How many jobs have we outsourced? You know, how many, uh, so how many people are underemployed, which is a giant crisis in this country? They're saying, oh, the unemployment rate is uh, 3.5% these days. That's historically low. That doesn't include underemployed, which is a lot of people. And it also, it's not that what's called the U6 unemployment rate, which tells you the true unemployment rate, which is also people who've given up looking for work. When you look at the real unemployment rate, it's about 7%. So that's, I mean, that's like a lot larger than what they're saying. And also, again, they're not including the underemployed people. They're not including the fact that wages haven't budged since the 1980s. Wages have been relatively stagnant since the 1980s. You also have the crisis of automation on top of the crisis of outsourcing. So you have all these problems. And at the same time that this is going on, the richest 400 families pay less in taxes than the bottom 50%. The only way you could have a country continue to be a civilized country is if you have a progressive tax system implemented. Because that's the only way that you're going to ameliorate the ills of the extreme income and wealth inequality and make it so that you have redistributive, redistributive policies that allow it so people have health care, people have education, you know, people could get paid time off by law. Every other developed country has paid vacation time by law. We're the only one that doesn't have that. I mean, at some point, you're going to go too far here. There's going to be a giant economic crash, and there's going to be massive social unrest and instability. And, uh, you know, that's why a lot of the literature around FDR talks about how technically he actually saved capitalism is what he did. Because, you know, when the Great Depression hit, it's like, okay, either we do massive, giant, systemic reform, which takes away the power of the uber-wealthy, or we go further and totally redo the system and scrap capitalism completely. So we don't move to some form of social democracy. We move to some post-capitalist philosophy. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of literature about how FDR kind of actually saved capitalism. And unfortunately, what happened in the long run is, the you know crisis of neoliberalism, Ronald Reagan era of big government is over, destroying of those New Deal programs, and we've even gotten to the point now where the progressive tax rate has been almost totally obliterated. I mean, you can still argue to some extent it's progressive because again, you have upper middle class and like regular rich still pay a slightly higher rate than the bottom 50%. But the mega wealthy, the oligarchs, the real issue, the real people in this country who run it. Okay, it's the corporations and it's these 400 families. They're the ones who are getting away with murder. There was a time in this country when the top marginal tax rate was 91%. Now, relax. It's not, they didn't actually, government didn't actually come in and take 91% of the uber wealthy's money. They didn't do that. Okay, because the effective rate was much lower. The effective rate, which is the rate you actually pay, was about 43%. But still, history shows 
they were paying significantly more than they're paying now. I just told you. I mean, we got to increase their taxes. We got to redistribute. Everybody's in favor of redistribution to one extent or another. It's just where do you draw the line? That's the question. And certainly where we've drawn the line now is that of a literal, quote, plutocracy. That's not me saying it. That's these economists who are doing this research saying it. Now, go ahead. Check and see how much they're talking about this on CNN, how much they're talking about this on MSNBC, how much they're talking about this on Fox News. Please. As Donald Trump pretends like he's a friend of the working man, they cite his tax bill specifically that finally tipped the scales and made it the case that the richest 400 families pay less than the bottom half. So he is a friend of the plutocrat, the oligarch. He's not a friend of the working man. He could do that fake populist tap dance all day long. But he's got a knife in your back, and he's twisting it. The Supreme Court is going to hear an LGBTQ rights case, and let's uh, see a little news thing on that here. So the Supreme Court is in the process of hearing a very important LGBTQ rights case, um, and it's about whether or not businesses have a right to fire you because of your gender identity. So Vice News covered this. Take a look. This morning, justices heard arguments for three cases that tackle what might seem like a simple question. Can you be fired for being gay or for being transgender? The LGBTQ movement has scored several major wins over the past two decades, including the right to marry, and social acceptance is at an all-time high. The plaintiffs in today's cases have similar stories. They were stellar employees until suddenly they weren't. Gerald Bostock, a county social worker in Georgia, was employed without issue for 10 years. Then he claims he got fired after word spread that he joined an LGBT softball league. Daniel Darda, a gay skydiving instructor in New York, told female customers about his sexuality to make them more comfortable about being tightly strapped together. When a customer complained, Darda got fired. And then there's Amy Stevens, a Michigan transgender funeral home worker. Amy presented as a man and went by Anthony, and she was fired after six years when she told her bosses she was transitioning to female. Her transition, her bosses said, went against, quote, God's command. The firings were all legal under state law. It is, however, against the law in 21 states and Washington, D.C., for a workplace to discriminate against someone because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. From there, it's piecemeal with some states only protecting one or the other or only offering protections for specific types of employees. That leaves 17 states with no protections. The plaintiffs argued in court today that they're protected by federal law. They say Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 guarantees nationwide protection from workplace discrimination to gay and transgender people. We're talking about millions and millions of people they could go to work every day fearful for being fired for who they are, 
how they identify, and who they love. And that's wrong. On the other side, both the government and lawyers for the defendants argued that sex is not the same as sexual orientation or gender identity. So Title VII doesn't apply here. Today's arguments were the first gay and transgender rights cases argued in front of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. He replaced a notorious swing vote, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinions on four previous gay rights cases. Kavanaugh stayed relatively quiet today, but he'll make his opinion known on this case and other high-profile ones when decisions start landing next year. So uh, it's... I'm not sure what's going to happen, and the reason I say that is very simply because sometimes these people throw a bone to the American public when it comes to social issues. Sometimes they realize, like, oh, if we're going to keep screwing them when it comes to the economy, when it comes to corporate power, well, we can, you know, give them a little slack in other areas So they don't revolt. And historically, that's kind of manifested on social issues. It's the main reason why you actually see so many, like, woke corporations that try to be inclusive. Because they know, like, oh, if we seem like we're down with, uh, you know, the lefty movement, then maybe they'll be off our ass when we don't pay people a living wage or avoid important regulations or whatever it may be. Now, it depends how much of an ideologue Neil Gorsuch is, Brett Kavanaugh is. Now, they probably are massive ideologues, but oftentimes these guys, you'd be surprised, some of them are very libertarian-leaning in a a way. And so on social issues, they, they do offer some leeway. However, the actual libertarian issue on this, in this specific case, that the libertarian position, I should say, is, um, is basically to say, hey, it's up to the business to make the choice. And if they want to discriminate solely based on gender identity, they have every right to do so. So I fear that they could lean in that direction. If I had to guess, they'll go in the wrong direction on this one, and that'll be their their takeaway. That'll be what they decide. Um, But to me, you know, I look at this case, and it strikes me as a no-brainer. And so the argument is, hey, the Civil Rights Act is crystal clear, um, it also protects sex. And the counter-argument from them is, well, no, because sex doesn't include gender identity. I mean, to say, oh, my God, it protects gender, but not gender identity is a little bit insanely nitpicky because the spirit of the Civil Rights Act is very clear. The spirit of the Civil Rights Act is, you shouldn't arbitrarily discriminate against people for characteristics they have no control over. I mean, that's the spirit of it. Oh, this person's of a different race, and you want to fire them or not serve them simply because they're a different race? No, you can't do that. These are anti-discrimination protections, and for arbitrary characteristics, you can't just kick somebody out of your store or fire them. Now, if, this, if, if it's based on actions, so you know somebody's coming in your store knocking over all the shelves and they happen to be of a different race, you could kick them out then because it's not like it's because of their race that you're doing it. It's because of the actions that you're doing it. But this is an instance that these are like model employees and they were fired. And it's like, so then you're really just firing them because you have a disagreement on something arbitrary like their gender identity. 
And so I think this is clear, a, a plain face reading. It's both the spirit of the law and I'd argue the letter of the law that under the Civil Rights Act, you can protect gender identity. They're going to try to make a nitpicky argument of like, well, no, it protects gender, but not gender identity. And you have to see if that lands with the justices. But I mean, it would obviously be a terrible precedent if that's the case, because what you are saying is that as a result of gender identity, they're in like a pre-civil rights era situation permanently now. If they decide the wrong way in this case, then yes, somebody could just fire you because they're uncomfortable with, you know, who you are. And I think that's messed up. I think that's messed up. I mean, I generally lean in a very libertarian direction when it comes to social issues, but, you know, this is an instance of, <clears throat> of the same philosophy as the Civil Rights Act uh, just being implemented across the board. You know, in the same way that we all now kind of get it's wrong to just fire somebody for being black or kick them out because they're black. I don't see why that doesn't extend to. I don't see why that doesn't extend to, to gender and gender identity. I think that's the obvious logical step there, um, and I think it's perfectly analogous. And I think the principle is the same. And unfortunately, this isn't an open and shut case. But in a world that made sense, this be nine zero all day long, and this would be on the side of the. The, uh, the people who are being persecuted and, and fired simply because of who they are. So I hope this case is decided properly, but you never know because this court is now massively conservative, and uh, that's scary. Partisanship is a brain virus oftentimes, and um, it's made its way into, like, everything. And so Fox Business took some time out of their day and all the important news that they could cover to cover this story, which is basically, like, the pinnacle of this dynamic, the dynamic being, like, rank tribal, tribalism and partisanship. Look at... Um, what they think is important to, to do a segment on in the middle of the day. Welcome back. Cars, God, America, and guns. One car dealership banking on all four. Lawrence Manning with the details now. Lawrence. Hey, Maria. It is a Ford dealership, and it's in Honeyapath, South Carolina, northwest part of the state, population 3,700. This is a people that loves to hunt. And the folks and the employees at the car dealership got together one day and said, what do we love? Selling cars, our country, our faith, so let's do this promotion for October and November. You come in, you buy a Ford, and you leave with a free Bible, a free American flag, and a $400 voucher to buy a gun at the local gun store. If you do not want to buy a gun, because we understand that these are our beliefs, we're not forcing them upon you, we do support the Second Amendment, you might not, we'll take that $400 off the price of your new car. Well, obviously, this drummed up some controversy on social media. I'll read you some of the responses. Uh, Tony LaMassa writes, can't wait for the lawsuits when your company is held liable for a shooting. 
But let me talk about the positive also. Mike Simmons, God bless America. Good for you. Too bad I don't live closer. Well, guess what? The dealership sales are up. One customer said, you know what? I saw this promotion, and I drove two hours just to buy my new Ford from them. I got my Bible, got my flag, and got my voucher for a gun. Wow. Let me show you some of the comments here. These are the top comments on the video. A nice slap in the face to the far-left Democrats. Would love to see more of this. Never owned a Ford, but they are tempting me. God bless America, the land of the free. If you don't like it, feel free to leave us. We love Fords, always have. And with patriotic dealerships like this one, always will. And then K-A-G, it says CAG, which stands for Keep America Great. If I lived there and was in the market to purchase a Ford, I would from these guys. And that person is, uh, by the way, hashtag no soy boy. <laughs> oh, man. Like, so he, if the left did a, a version of this, it would be like if they said, hey, show up to, you know, this car dealership and get a free gift certificate for an abortion at Planned Parenthood. That's what that's like. That's what that's like. What would the reaction be if that was the case? People would be like, what are you doing? It wouldn't even just be outrage and anger. Cause it would be that. But it would also be like, you're just ridiculous people. Like, what are you doing? Because what's happening here is they're elevating cultural issues to the mantle of, like, a fundamentalist religion. I, You know, I have to say, one of my biggest... I wouldn't call it a blind spot, but just something I didn't focus on enough is this idea that cultural influences, cultural power is just as powerful as the other things that go into a political analysis like economics. And, I mean, this is just such a clear example of the power of this sort of stuff is that simply by being incredible goofballs and offering, you know, an American flag, a Bible, and a gun with purchases of, of a car. Now all of a sudden, you know, the far right is just absolutely in love with them. They think they're the best dealership on the planet, the best car company on the planet. They have nothing but positive things. And, like, there's no room for self-reflection. There's no room for, like, well, what are, what are we really doing here? Does this make sense? Does, does what we're doing here, does that make sense? They don't think, like, well, hold on. Bible and a gun, I mean, doesn't the thing, you know, I, we love Jesus. Jesus in most of the New Testament is just happy-go-lucky all the time, and he's a pacifist, turn the other cheek. So, hey, if, if you attack me, it is what it is, man. Here's the other cheek. Attack this bad boy, too. Like, a pacifist, but, but a gun with the pacifist, that doesn't, there's no, that's contradictory. But, again, it doesn't matter. They don't care because it's more about culture than it is about truth than it is about reason. And it just, it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. And I'm not saying that there's no, you know, somewhat similar versions to this on the left. Of course there is. You could argue Hollywood is like super cringy and liberal and like in a very reflexive way. But this is just, they have no idea how they look to people who aren't already in their cult. And I, it's hilarious that Fox Business, this is what Fox Business chose to cover. This. This is what Fox Business 
chose to cover in the middle of the day. Of all the things happening in the world, there's a lot of stuff happening. Let's blow a, a Ford dealership that decided to be like parodies of a, of a far-right Republican. God bless America, the land of the free. If you don't like it, feel free to leave us. Land of the free, we're all about freedom, unless you disagree, in which case you shouldn't be free and you should leave the country. Again, this only the power of cultural forces could make it so people don't read that statement and see the immediate silly contradiction and hypocrisy of it. Only cultural forces can do that. Where again, now we're at a point where these like the far right bubble and all these cultural signifiers, they manifest almost as a fundamentalist religion where, you know, this is like, this is next level type commitment stuff here. This is brain off Pavlovian reaction You're telling me what I want to hear, so I love it, man. You're part of my club. I don't know if it's ever been this bad. I don't know if this degree of partisanship has ever existed in the modern political era. But, man, is it rock solid at this point, and there's no going back. Okay. Now uh, we're going to go to Kanye West. Fox Business Network is going to go over the top here in defense of Kanye West. Kanye is uh, making news for his love of Trump yet again. Let's see the arguments that they lay out for him. Despite his handlers, despite the masses, 
decide on his own. Imagine that. And so for him to... <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I mean, Patricia's here. I mean, that's what people should do. Make your own thoughts. Yeah, make your own decisions. You know what? We fought for the right to vote as a people. Now, we're not going to fight for the right to vote and then give up the right to choose who to vote for. And so for someone to deny your rights, that's slavery. To allow others to put you in the type of bondage where they dictate and determine how you think or how you behave. You can't even think the way you want to think. You can't voice, voice what you like or don't like. No, you can do that, but we have the right to tell you your line of thought is stupid. Because <laughs> it's stupid. <laughs> They're saying, like, disagreeing with Kanye's politics or criticizing him for his politics is a form of slavery. I mean, you want to talk about an ultimate identity politics argument. It's like saying, oh, my God, are you criticizing that? Man, that's kind of racist, isn't it? Because you want him to be on a mental plantation. This is like mental slavery. You're trying to force him into a box. No, I'm not. He can vote however he wants to vote. I don't give a shit. I'm just explaining why I think a lot of the things he's pushed in terms of politics are really dumb. And I think that because they're really dumb. <laughs> Their arguments are so weak. Like, we get, like, they're still arguing on some base level, like, yeah, if we want to vote for Republicans, we'll vote for Republicans. Nobody's telling you you can't vote. Go ahead, vote for whoever you want. We don't care. Go ahead, do your thing. You have every right to vote for whoever you I don't care who you vote for. You can vote for some person who's running, you know, as a freaking fascist in some weird neo-Nazi party. It is what it is. You do whatever you want. It's free country. But I can still criticize the, your politics. I can still say, hey, here's why I think that's wrong. Here's why I think that makes no sense. Does anybody really think if you sat down and went issue for issue with Kanye with everything Trump's doing and didn't tell him, you take Trump out of the equation, take Hillary out of the equation, take Bernie out of the equation, just give him all things Trump has done and tell him, hey, man, I'm going to run through these political issues. You tell me as we go, point for point, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? You think he would come out with 100% agreement with Trump? You think he would come out with 80% agreement with Trump? You think he would even come out with 50% agreement with Trump? No way. Not even close. No way, man. No way. The thing that's so annoying about Kanye is he's just a contrarian. That's all he is. Like, I know he loves to do this whole thing. I'm a genius. That actually does sound very similar to Trump, how Trump goes around saying, I'm a very stable genius. Unbelievable. But Kanye likes to do the same thing. I'm a, I'm a genius. You take, you see what other people are doing, and you just are doing the opposite. You're just going, I don't want to be with the crowd, man. I'm special. I'm a genius. I'm going to say the opposite. Now, sometimes if you do the you know, contrarian thing, sure, you can stumble on some good takes. But a lot of the times, it's just obvious that that's what you're doing, and there's no real thought going into it, and it's just a reflexive type thing. Like, your default assumption is, I'll do the opposite of whatever people expect me to do. Okay, but that's not, like, if you think we're going to pause and, and give you credit on that or say this is high-minded or intelligent or intellectual, it's not. It's just as stupid as the people who follow the crowd simply to follow the crowd. It's just the opposite extreme of that. If you're just following the crowd to follow the crowd, that's dumb. But if you're also just in a reflexive, reactionary way, just being a contrarian and saying everything the crowd ever said is wrong, that's also dumb. 
And it's so clear that's what he's doing. Because his whole commentary in regards to Trump is just like basically saying, man, they expect me to do this, so I'm not going to do this because that's mental slavery. So your whole, it's all emotional. The whole crux of his politics is like, I'm expected to do this, so I'm going to do that. That's stupid. That's dumb. That's, I don't, you're not going to get people to not criticize you on that because they should criticize you on that because it's ridiculous. You can do whatever you want to do, but we could also criticize you. That's how this works. Now, you can criticize us too, but he has trouble doing that because he hasn't had coherent thoughts about politics. He hasn't had them. So, you know, it's just, it, this, the shtick is getting old, man. It really is. And the level of analysis and the coverage that goes into it when they respond, it's like, this is the best you got. Oh, so you want us to have the right to vote, but you think we shouldn't vote for people who are terrible. Hmm. Well, then how much do you really believe in our right? <laughs> so tedious, so tiring. I don't even know why I'm talking about it, but yet, yet again, here we are. Okay. Final story of the day. We're going to go to Stuart Varney. So Stuart Varney of the Fox Business Network did a piece on freedom of speech. And, um, of course, he was incapable of viewing the issue objectively. And as you're going to see here... In many ways, he flips it. He flips the arguments, and it's super misleading. So let's watch, and then I'll break it down. Now this. It is now almost impossible to debate policy in a public forum. Forget free and open debate. In the places where free speech is most vital, free speech is dead. Case in point... The prestigious law school at Georgetown University, not quite so prestigious now. Kevin McLean had been invited to speak about immigration. After all, he runs the Homeland Security Department. As soon as he stood up to speak, he was shouted down by an organized group of protesters. They were chanting, quote, when immigrants are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back. Over and over and over again. Three times McLean tried to speak, they wouldn't let him. He walked off the stage. The packed house of immigration attorneys, lawyers, and law students were denied an exchange of views. There's no free speech for the Trump team. There's nothing new here. There's a long list of administration officials who've been run out of restaurants, accosted in the street, and denied access to any public forum. The left has been denying free speech to their opponents for a long time. It's got a lot worse. They can say what they like. No insult directed at Mr. Trump is considered out of bounds. No support for Mr. Trump is allowed at all. The left is free to shout down and disrupt, but they don't have the intellect or maturity to debate. Let me close with what I think is a great example of a social media mob being faced down. Here's a case of free speech and free association being supported. Gotta love it. Ellen DeGeneres sat next to Bush 43 at a football game. A photograph of the two together provoked very harsh criticism on Twitter. Ellen DeGeneres responded perfectly. She said this, I, Just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. Oh, we could use a lot more like that, couldn't we? And we need college 
if you're going to do a segment on free speech and you're not going to bring up the war on whistleblowers, you're not going to bring up Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, you're not going to bring up the anti-BDS resolutions in multiple states, resolutions which basically try to make it so that you cannot voice support for a boycott of Israel lest you forego your entire um, you know, contract that you'd have with the government. So in many cases, people's sole income. In order to get uh, flood relief money, hurricane relief money in Houston, people had to sign a pledge that they wouldn't boycott Israel. These are real crackdowns on free speech. Crackdowns on uh, the right to assemble peacefully in many places, which, again, those laws pop up all over the country, laws supported by the president. If you're going to talk about free speech and not bring those up, you're a charlatan. You're a con man. Because there are real legal free speech issues all around this country. There's a lot of them. And he's got nothing to say on those. And, in fact, he's on the wrong side of many of those. But in instances like this, all of a sudden he cares about free speech. So let's break it down. Now, should you, if there's going to be a speaker that comes to a college campus, should you have them speak? At some point, let them speak. Yes, they should speak, for sure, I think. But at the same time, Stu, the protesting students, that's also free speech. It is. Like, is part of free speech. But what he's saying is, no, only the government official coming to speak has free speech, and the students don't. Now, at some point... You need to make it so that, okay, yes, we're going to score you out. You know, you had your five, ten minutes to protest, and now we are going to hear from the government official. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's understandable that if you're getting protested at one of these events, after a certain amount of time, you make it so that the person does have the floor and they can speak. But understand that that is part of free speech. Part of free speech is having the annoying protest. And if it was working in the other direction, of course, Stuart Varney would love it. If there was some left-wing, you know, bomb thrower who is going to talk, not literal bomb thrower, some left-wing firebrand going to talk at a college campus and, and conservative students protested that person, all of a sudden he would understand that and say, no, they have a right to protest. Why, why would you say they're not allowed to protest? So, uh, of course, he flips the argument. And then also, he acts like they would never have a forum. They're a government official. They're in charge of, what, the Department of Homeland Security or something like that? Of course they're going to get a forum. You can invite him on your show today, and he would come on, and he'd be able to talk to way more people than he would in that room. So it's just disingenuous to act like they're totally being shut down. No, they're not. No, they're not. They actually have all the power. And when you challenge power, that's the, that's the reason for free speech, is so that you can challenge people in power. And then finally, the thing about Ellen is like, really, this is the example that you go to? People weren't saying you're not allowed to see George W. Bush. People weren't saying, you know, oh, we're against your right to free association and freedom of speech. No, what people were saying is, oh, that's a war criminal torture, and you shouldn't, you know, launder his image and normalize him to make it seem like he's okay now. Because he's not. He's not okay now. He's still a war criminal torturer who will never face justice. So people were correct in pointing that out. But Stuart Varney is triggered by those facts. He's triggered by the fact that George W. Bush is a torture war criminal. So instead he acts like, oh no, all the outrage is simply because they don't agree on everything, and they're hanging out. That's, none of the outrage is about that. Everybody's got people in their family who are super conservative and don't agree with them or whatever the case may be. They're mischaracterizing the issue on purpose, muddying the waters on purpose. I saw Rave Dubin did the same thing, where Rave Dubin was talking about how, uh, like, taking Ellen's side, like, see, the, the left is so uh, intolerant of 
views that they disagree with. It's not about being intolerant of views you disagree with. Again, we all have people we disagree with who are friends and family. All of us. Everybody does. It's about, hey, he's a war criminal, and you're treating him like he's not a war criminal, and you're laundering his image, and it probably is because he's an American war criminal, so you think it doesn't count, and also because you hate Trump so much that you, oh, let's go back to the days when everybody was serious, like when we had George W. Bush as president. There's a variety of bad reasons why it ended up like that, but that's what she did, and everybody's mischaracterizing the issue and strawmanning the people who are talking about it, and it's, and it's infuriating. And I need everybody to notice something. The only time they ever invoke these free speech arguments is when they're conveniently making a case for their own partisan politics. That's it. Okay. All right, baby, we're done. I love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy your weekend. I'm out. Peace.